I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight, Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hello, John, and I'm glad that we are back now for another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. We've had some really good shows with uh, some good guests, and I think that with this particular show, we're going to continue a conversation that we had with a many retired. He's a retired director of the FAA Flight Standards Service. He's a retired VP of Safety, and he's a retired Brigadier General. I mean, that's a lot of retireds. He couldn't hold a job very long, so we're happy to have John Allen back who is our friend and definitely uh, an encyclopedia of knowledge with regard to military operations since he's retired, airline operations since he's retired, and FAA operations since he's retired. So we're bringing John back to continue a discussion because he's put out a book that, uh, that addresses a lot of stuff and gives you a very good understanding about how the FAA works, how the industry works. And we felt that it was necessary to bring John back to continue our discussion. So I know, John G., since I have two Johns and I usually only need one, just to keep us all straight, I'm going to uh, refer to my buddy and friend, John Golia, as John G., in this particular show. So, hey, John, how are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry, John G. <laughs> I'm doing fine. Enjoying the sunshine still, waiting for my second shot. The two Johns are both in Florida, but we're so far apart, we have different weather. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, more the merrier, you know. But. All right. And before we even start, I want to remind our listeners that this show is being brought to, the, to them by... PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. And if you find yourself in need of renewing a policy or getting a new policy for an airplane that you acquired, give Avemco a call on 888-879-0389 or log on to avemco.com and mention Flight Safety Detectives and you get a 5% discount right off the bat. Yep. They're a great sponsor for us, John. And, you know, they cover the gamut. And we've talked on previous shows about the need for renter's insurance. So if uh, you're renting airplanes at a flight school or an FBO and you need renter's insurance, they are the ones to look to. As a CFI, a lot of organizations now are requiring CFIs to carry independent insurance to supplement uh, whatever insurance the, the company that you fly for may have. So if you need any of that kind of insurance, definitely go to a Bemco. I've been talking to them recently because I do rent airplanes 
And so uh, I'm getting I'm getting schooled up for that besides having an airplane. So if you definitely need insurance, call a Bemco and be sure to tell them that you listen to flight safety detectives to get that extra bonus. Well, John, we've had interesting discussions, and one of the things that we noticed in your book and we mentioned to you in our previous conversations is about a possible change in the, the way that the NTSB recommendations get developed and get implemented as compared to the way they have in the past, and I would like to carry that conversation on further. Sure, John. Uh, Greg, thank you for that warm introduction. Uh, now I'm not retired. I'm just tired. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, with all those jobs that you tried to hold and you had to leave and retire from, I can imagine why. Well, yeah, I, I, I go by the premise that I'd rather go on my terms and not be told to leave. So <laughs> I try to pick the best time. But anyway, thank you for that. And picking up on that, John Golia, thank you. Yes, you know, when I was the director of flight standards, the way that the NTSB recommendations would come down, as I said, 80% would come to flight standards, and of that, 80% would go to our air transportation division, and we would discuss it as to whether we could do something in terms of maybe incorporating it with an advisory material, advisory circular, make it voluntary, because doing rulemaking takes 10 years. If it was something very serious, we would put it into the rulemaking stack, if you will, but over the well, I'd say yeah, and, uh, by 2013, 2012, it was overcome by reauthorization requirements to do rulemaking. And, and so that didn't work too well. So, you know, we would try to incorporate what we could in the existing rulemaking that we had planned and partly in a rulemaking docket that was uh, specified by the reauthorization acts. Now, now, I know that didn't make the NTSB happy because they had a lot of really good stuff, but it just couldn't meet the regulatory vow to find any kind of light. Now, though, when I got to JetBlue and putting together an SMS and really pouring into, of course, the rule came out and was actually operational in 2018, it came to our attention that actually, according to that rule, the airlines under SMS have to address any known risk. Well, if the NTSB publishes recommendations, that's a known risk. So now... The airlines have to attend to them. Now, they can say, well, we already accommodated, or we do this, or we do that, but at least they all have to accommodate any NTSB recommendation and report back to the FAA, their FAA oversight, as to their dispensation, whether they accept the risk, whether they understand the risk and are mitigating it, and what their action plans. We had a very vigorous program where if there's a risk and it's going to mitigate it, they have to have an action plan. They have to do everything within a certain time period. This is just at JetBlue so that folks had to follow through on this stuff. So in that vein, I think that with SMS, it gives the NTSB recommendations more bite than they had beforehand. So if I understand you correctly, John, if the recommendation comes down, the airline, because of their SMS, has to view now the recommendation as an identified risk because it came from the NTSB, but can they evaluate it and say, like you said, they can either say, yeah, we already do that and tell the NTSB that. Do they have the ability 
too evaluated to see how applicable it may be because the NTSB has put stuff out in the past. I know <laughs> you used to do it to the FAA all the time where we were asking for pie in the sky and the FAA would come back and go, look, we can't do that. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the resources. That's not practical. This is a one-off. It's an isolated event. Do the airlines have the ability to at least vet it in that perspective to see how it will or will not affect their operation? Yeah, a few things on that. One, I know because the NTSB realized that they couldn't require rulemaking, so there would be recommendations. So then the FAA was free to put out SAFOs, safety advisories, advisory circles, SAFOs, infos, things like that, and make it voluntary to accommodate it that way. But with this, the FAA was still might put out, well, safe, this has happened. The FAA will pick up on the NTSB recommendations, and they'll put together a SAFO, and SAFOs are distributed out to the airlines. And the airlines, that for sure, understand that is a known risk or identified risk, and they evaluate it, but they have to let the FAA know, okay, are they going to accept it? Or are they uh, going to do something? How are they going to accommodate it? And so then they don't report back to the NTSB. The NTSB would probably have to canvas the FAA to find out, you know, how many, what was the dispensation on that, on that risk? And I don't think there's any organization to that at all at this point right now. But you're right. The individual airlines can look at it and say, well, you know, that recommendation doesn't apply to us because we don't fly in icing conditions. Or that doesn't apply to us because we don't have that type of airplane. Or that doesn't apply to us, you know, for whatever reason. Others sure. might say there could be a different gradations of it, saying, well, we have technology actually now that accommodates that, you know, because there are technological changes all the time. And they say, you know, we've implemented XYZ, and that is not a risk because we have that covered. I've been impressed with the many ways that processes and technologies with various airlines can accommodate risks that are identified by the NTSB. So actually it gets more granular, which I think is good, because sometimes some of the recommendations that came down were so sweeping, it kind of lost any kind of bite because a lot of folks said, well, that's kind of ridiculous. It's it's so broad. I'm not sure it identifies with us or not. So those things are all considered. And And so now, is it perfect? No. Nothing's perfect. It's better. And what I think needs to happen is this realization that they have to accommodate it and and that there is leadership from the NTSB, from the FAA, to make sure that the airlines understand they need to attend to these identified recommendations because they're known risk. Good morning, John on the ground. Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi. Let's take it down a couple of levels now. Okay. What happens, of course, in the 121 world, is that going to filter down into the 135 world? And a number of my clients who are large Fortune 100, 500 flight departments who all have an SMS program you know, incorporated in their particular corporate flight department, are the same rules going to affect them as far as if the NTSB comes out with a recommendation? they need to incorporate it into their respective operations. So there is not a SMS rule out for Part 135. We have heard that one will be coming out. Don't know when, but if it does, actually, let me put it this way. For the NTSB, for any U.S. citizen who's curious, 
wait for the advanced notice for proposed rulemaking or the notice for proposed rulemaking and see if it has the same language in that for Part 135 as it has for 121 about the SMS program needs to attend to any identified or known risk. Then that gives the hook for the FAA to follow what the airlines do in terms of attending to that risk. So it depends on how the rule's written and what comes out. I would suspect that it will. I would suspect that it will follow the rulemaking from the 121 rule. And then I believe that then too, Part 135 operators would have the same requirement. You know, an interesting twist on that is there's a number of large corporate operators that have SMS, not because of any rule here in the United States, but because they can't fly into Bermuda or Europe or many other countries around the world without an SMS program. And if they don't address a known risk, because, you know, if the NTSB were to put it out to, to uh, like an all-hands bulletin, the Europeans are going to be aware of that. And if they check on somebody that's coming into their country and they haven't addressed that, they could get sent back. And they're damn fussy about that SMS program. I mean, I know one company that flew into France and was asked to leave, and then they went through a process and the, the French let them stay. But they, the French were, were pretty tough. Yeah, so a lot to that, too. So, yeah, I was in, maybe was a deputy director in AFS 900 when all that was going on. So Dave Gilliam instituted a program where we had a four-step program, and you get certain levels as airlines in the United States were progressing toward an SMS. See, what happened when SMS was coming about, and we were working on it out of Dulles AFS 900, Don Art was also working with folks in IKO. I think it was Captain Mancuso, I think is his name. Anyway, IKO picked up on it, and they jumped all over it and made a requirement for all members of IKO to have an SMS. Well, we said, wait a minute. We have a lot of major companies, and I think it was the right thing for government to do, saying we're not going to follow through and impose an SMS rule when we don't have all the total guidance out there. We don't want companies going off and, and trying to create SMS and have to redo things and cost them a lot of money. So we filed a difference with IKO to give us 10 years to put out a lot of guidance so that airlines could start working toward an SMS. And in that process, I, as director, signed a lot of letters for folks saying that they were working toward an SMS to appease the French, to appease a lot of other countries, that if a carrier was working toward an SMS and had a letter signed by me, that that would give them you know, a kitchen pass, so to speak. And that's what happened, I think, down in the French example that you were citing. Now, that said, a lot of folks except for 121, aren't required to have an FAA-approved SMS. Now, they can put together an SMS based on the guidance they see, but there's nothing saying for Part 91, 135, 145, and all those other parts, they have to have an FAA-approved. So I just put together an SMS for a small drone carrier down in South Florida. They're not required to have an SMS. I'm not sure that they're actually going to put it together. I think that they're taking it as a trophy to show their clients and to show the FAA. But it may not have all the requirements that the rule says that they should have. So when somebody says, well, we've got an SMS, you know, I've learned over the years that there are probably as many interpretations of what an SMS is as there are people in the world. And that's, 
that's a great point, John, because, you know, one of the things about an SMS program is it's it's kind of squishy. That is, you know, they give the guidance as to what the SMS program should contain as far as um, how to identify risks, how to how to mitigate risk, how to eliminate risks, what to do, uh, how to get people involved in, in all of that. But it's like a living document because it's going to change. It's going to morph with each respective operation because you can't put a generic program in place, even though there are a lot of companies that try to sell you a generic program. Because I've got operators who have an airplane and two pilots. Well, a full-blown SMS doesn't fit them. So I have to tailor it. I have to cut out all the fat because a lot of the stuff in a 121 program doesn't apply. And, and I think that, you know, to, to make it usable, and that's, I think, the real key is usable, it has to be tailored to the respective organization and flight schools. Are flight schools going to be required to have an SMS? One, I think it's I, I think it should be mandated from the standpoint that as your training pilots, they have to get used to what SMS is because if they're going on, uh, whether it's to the airlines or a charter operator or business aviation, they'll already understand what SMS is all about. Plus two, it'll help enhance the aviation safety within the organization of a flight school where the risk is always high just by the nature of flight training. Right, Greg. Uh, so several things on that, too. Yeah, I just put together an SMS for the drone operator on Part 91, Part 107. But the thing is, unless they're really required to follow a rule that has those words that uh, with the SMS, they are required or expected to attend to any known risk. I believe that's in the language for 121. Then nothing makes the others do that. And I think that that's what's important when you follow an FAA-approved by regulation SMS program. You got specific wording that requires you to do certain things. You see, so if people say they have an SMS, but it's not required by regulation. They might have all of the bells and whistles as far as you know the the policy, the risk management, the safety assurance, and the promotion and just culture and change management and all that stuff. But they don't have anything holding them accountable to attending to all known risks. Now, one of the reasons I left the FAA and went to JetBlue is, well, besides them letting me fly right seat to 321, <laughs> was because I wanted to put together an SMS based on these philosophies that I've been working to put some together. And it was an interesting exercise when I got to JetBlue. We had to start from ground zero. We didn't have any things layered in. JetBlue, before I got there, didn't take advantage of that pilot program. All we had was an excellent gap analysis put together, what I call my gap kids. Two young, very brilliant guys, one from Emory-Riddle and the other one from Florida Institute of Technology, FIT. A shout out to those institutions for providing us very young, very talented individuals. We put together a great gap analysis. And from that, we completely built an SMS that took us four years. We had to change a safety culture. And that took a lot of effort. And we we just we ticked off every part of that 121 regulation to make sure that we met and implemented the processes and could show we were having success in implementing those. I don't know that these SMSs that some have 
that aren't under our regulation, put them together with that rigor. And so that's, I'll leave it at that. And one of the things that has always been one of the things that I was concerned with with the FAA, and John and I, John G and I have talked about this in the past, and that is when we talk about the FAA and we talk about what we're talking about now, SMS, it always gravitates, of course, to the air carrier, the 121 operations, and sometimes migrates down into the 135 charters. But during my time at the NTSB, and even now, we put a lot of emphasis on the big boys because they are carrying people for hire and we expect the highest levels of safety. And the mandate is for them to operate at the highest levels of safety. But we also have that mandate to, as a general aviation pilot, to operate at the highest levels of safety. And while Part 91 operators, guys like me who own an airplane to fly for you know business or recreation or whatever, the expectation is every time you get near that airplane, you're going to fly safely. What is the FAA philosophy? Because I sure don't see it in the fact that they don't give, at least now, because I'm dealing with several issues that I think are safety critical issues that need to be addressed and corrected by the FAA, but they've gone flatline and they really have not given it the safety issues that we've identified the credence or at least the effort that they would give to a, an air carrier. When you were there, what was that dynamic and what was the philosophy about general aviation versus uh, you know, the larger commercial operators? Certainly a lot of attention and care. I would definitely say it's split uh, 50-50. Just for edification, you know, when we have, say, the 5,000, 6,000, let's go with 6,000 round number inspectors that are out there, about 3,000 are air carrier and 3,000 are general aviation. And then you split each of that in half because that half of 1,500 are airworthiness and the other are ops. Now, 1,500, let's say, airworthiness inspectors, how in-depth do you think they can get with all of the maintenance folks out there in the hangars? I mean, the environment is just huge. So that's why I was saying that the FAA has to find a better a better way to leverage their capability. And so there is a great concern out there. We're using uh, uh, type clubs. Uh, there's been some success at that. And there's been a bit of effort. But you know what? Philosophically, John, and this might seem crude, but the risk to the innocent public is higher with the air carriers because when someone buys a ticket, they assume that it's a safe environment, and uh, therefore the government has more of a due diligence to ensure that safe environment. In the GA realm, though, if someone is usually flying the small aircraft themselves, they understand the risks. There's, quite frankly, not as much concern publicly if something should happen. It doesn't make the press. And so it's a matter of using your scarce resources where there's the most bang for the buck, if you will. It's unfortunate. There's just not enough time. So that's why when I say we have to be smarter, don't expect a regulator, don't suspect regulation is going to fix that stuff necessarily. Yeah. There's going to have to be a lot of voluntary. And quite frankly, my buddy, Robert Zumwalt, at a hearing, kind of threw me under the bus, although we laugh about that. And that, you know, I was saying with the emergency medical helicopter situation with the fatalities that, that, that were occurring there, we found some success by putting out voluntary requirements, 95% adhere to them. And we had quicker response 
than waiting for a regulation. And there's some other things. And I'll go real quick on SMS. And I believe, and we found at JetBlue with the virus, SMS gave us a much better safety discipline, better organization, and we were really rabid on doing change management so that we could quickly figure out what change was occurring and what was our risk. So when we undid the change, we had it all written down and it showed the FAA, okay, this is what we did. This is what we're doing as we're pulling back. It is a lot more rigor and therefore it's all documented. And it gives you some form and substance to have discipline on managing risk. I argue, and I just did it with this one two-person operation, SMS can be scalable. Yeah. And you can scale it, but at the same time, let's say you have the one person, 135 operator, you can scale it, but it will give them, one, a new vocabulary in terms of hazards, in terms of controls, in terms of risk management, to think about their operation in terms of risk, you know, and think about you know, what some of us is flying in years we have done in the past is always being preventative, flying ahead of the airplane mentally and not just in the moment. So, It'll give them that rigor, I think, to do a better job in terms of safety. They document it. This is a key of why I like SMS as a regulator. As a regulator, I got tired of the Congress pointing their finger at us and say, Mr. FAA, you have to ensure safety as well as a regulation. I contend that applies to air traffic because they're actively controlling aircraft. But for the, for the overseer, for the inspector, we assure safety. We're doing the oversight. The folks that have to ensure it are the operators who are flying it, fixing it, maintaining it, training it, managing it. And so I think understanding that relationship, having some kind of form and substance of doing that, not only in 121, but in 135, 145, part 91 realm, I think is a way to go for the future. Low speed ailerons, normal and normal. Rudder travel pitch field. Nine. Nav exterior lines. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Hello. One of the things, then I want to switch gears a little bit because John G and I, we do beat up on the NTSB quite a bit for not doing their job. And during this COVID period, they really aren't doing their job. We know that through the party system, the FAA is an automatic party and the board has the ability or the authority to delegate aspects of an investigation to the FAA. And during this COVID period, the NTSB has not gone out on accidents. They're better than 350 accidents behind. But they think that it's safe to go send an FAA inspector out there to collect the on-scene information and that kind of stuff. I know that the, the workload has always been an issue with inspectors because you talked about the limited resources and, and having to split those resources and, and utilizing them to the advantage of being able to do their respective jobs. And their respective jobs are oversight and enforcement. I mean, those are the primaries and and that kind of thing. And accident investigation is an additional duty as assigned. Yet, when the inspectors go out there, they already have a big workload. So the effort they put into accident investigation is... Let's just get whatever we need and ship it to the NTSB and move on because I got to get back to my regular job. John G and I talked about approaching the FAA, and we actually did approach the FAA with a proposal that they should make or allow for designated accident investigators, just like we have DERs, DARs, DPEs, everything else that's designated. Why not have a designated 
accident investigator who has high levels of qualification, works on behalf of the FAA to relieve these inspectors of that burden so that they can focus primarily on their job. And the reason I bring this up, John, is because the NTSB is always beaten up on the FAA for lack of oversight, inadequate oversight, failure in their oversight, and that kind of thing. So I just wanted to get your perspective because we're trying to work, and now we're in a COVID environment, which is totally different. And now the FAA isn't going out and doing a lot of their job because of COVID. So who's out there investigating to assure continued airworthiness of a product, especially in the general aviation realm? Who's collecting those facts, conditions, and circumstances? And then, of course, who's looking at the enforcement of rules and regulations? Because I, I, I get worried that, you know, some of these guys flying out there is catch me if you can, and they're out there doing things that shouldn't be done. Yeah, I'm always a big fan of, of designees, so I'm a, I, I would be a fan of that. I don't know who would pay for it. The designee, who would pay the designee? Would it be an NTSB budget, FAA budget? I mean, those details could be worked out. I do agree that the FAA is interested in this virus, puts on an extra burden on both the FAA and the NTSB. I do like the designee possibility, and it can be spelled out in terms of the checks and balances to make sure that they don't get, the relationships don't get too offsetting. And quite frankly, you know, again, a lot would, people would probably disagree with me, but I try to get away from the word inspectors, although I was one, and call them regulators because except for certain cases. I mean, you have the real bad guys and we have our jackboot thug inspectors that need to be black and white and burrow in on those bad folks that are out there. But by and large, to be able to handle the large, complex, and sophisticated aviation environment that's out there, they need to be more regulators where they are assured safety by working with the SMS programs, by helping identify risk, by collaborating with the certificate holders to make sure that and as partners, the certificate holder is attending to risk in a triage fashion. I tell all our safety folks at JetBlue, I, I tell the FAA inspectors that there's always going to be more safety risk than you'll ever have the time of day to attend to. So you have to rank it in terms of risk and get the biggest stuff off the top, at least, because you'll never get to it all. And so I think using designees, again, it's a force multiplier, to use a military term, for the FA, for the NTSB. And I think it, it would be a very worthwhile thing to gather data. And data is key for SMS to get more predictive and proactive on the safety disposition of GA and uh, small operators. One of the things that I know John G is, and again, we talk a lot. I mean, we talk not only on this show, but we talk offline about a variety of different issues that we see both here in the United States and worldwide. And maintenance and maintenance operations, maintenance techs seem to be the bastard children sometimes of aviation. There's a view out there in the industry, not widely held anymore, I don't believe, but there used to be this attitude of above wing and below wing, above wing being the pilots, below wing being the mechanics. There wasn't a lot of synergy between the two, and that led to a lot of issues. Now, as a general aviation pilot, I have a mechanic that works on my airplane. I grill him to find out exactly what did you touch on my airplane? Because if something goes wrong when I'm in the air, <laughs> it might be something that he touched, and I want to be prepared for it. 
how does the FAA really view and do they give them the same attention that they give the upside of aviation, regardless of whether it's 121 or GA? Mm-hmm. What is your perspective since you, you, know, you were the director and you were having to oversee all aspects of aviation? That's a good question. You know, yeah, I was a director and I come from the ops side. However, I was brought into that position by Jim Baylog, God bless him, who was a maintainer. And I found that we spent equal. Well, you know, when you're in that position, I would say there's a hundred different topics we're covering in a given day, whether it be international, it'd be unions, new technology, it'll be communities with concerns. Could be parachutes, could be balloons, maintenance, ops, airlines, GA, you name it, every day, or just dealing with the management of the day to day issues in government, politics, press, hearings, everything. And I would say that maintenance did get as much, or if not more, attention than ops. We have a lot of bilateral agreements, and a lot of it was maintenance because now. These manufacturers are international. Parts are coming from all over the world. I mean, I got an education on PMA. I came from good stock. My dad was a jet engine mechanic, or not, 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 he was before jet engines, uh, engine mechanic with the Air Force, he was a flight engineer. So I know I denigrated the family name when I became a pilot and an officer. But uh, he, you know, instilled in me the importance of attending to the maintenance of things. And so I would argue that it's very much given as much if not more so. And same at JetBlue. We were dealing with tech ops issues day in and day out. Now, I must tell you, and I, John, if you agree or not, but I find that tech ops is a little bit different culture than operations. When we have the info share meetings and you have the different tracks, you have ops, you have tech ops maintenance, you have in-flight, you have SOC, and then you have ground airports. And we're talking about just culture. The maintenance community is not far along as the ops because they had ASAP programs, but they're very distrustful of just culture. They still want to eat their own. They're reticent to, if somebody made a mistake and they report on themselves, to say, okay, we're not going to fire you. We're going to see you know, what's the, the, the root cause of it. They kind of want to ready, shoot, and aim kind of speak. So it's a different culture between the two, but maintenance definitely got a lot of attention. John, when I think back to the years when I started in this business back in the, in the early 60s, and it was with United Airlines, if a mechanic made a small mistake, you might get a three-day or a medium mistake, might get a five-day off without pay. A big one, you might get 30 days off fired. And they've been doing that for as long as, as I know, all those years that I was in the business, and it obviously started before then. So it's been a tough, a tough road to get just culture in grained within that organization. And unfortunately, it's my generation that really pushed hard against thinking about just culture. But now we, there's another generation come along, and maybe now we can, we can make some progress in that area. But I also wanted to go back to one other point when you were talking about the FAA. You know, we, we had been trying since 1988 that I was involved with, and it goes back probably further than that, to get an update to the mechanic certification rules, the education and the time in, in, uh, to get your ticket. And I had against the wall repeatedly all those years. 
And it finally came to a head with industry and the repair stations and manufacturers. It finally came to a head over the last several years. And uh, a bill was just passed, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was just passed here at the very end of the the last uh, Senate session that took the mechanic education away from the FAA and has given it to the Department of Education. And the FAA has to build a test around that. So, and the test is, is suddenly we're going to get a more robust test, which is what everybody wanted in the first place. We wanted more electronics into it, and I think we're going to see that finally. But sometimes our own agencies are our own worst enemies because the human beings, including me sometimes, resist change. And we've resisted change in that Part 65 forever. And now the change is coming, and it may be the change that we don't want. But we'll have to wait and see, because it is the law now. I caught most of that. A couple things. It's culture change. And like I said, the ops have been at just culture and all that for a lot longer time, starting with ASAP. And we're into that change with, with tech ops, with the just culture. And what it takes is just a few success stories. At JetBlue, we had one young lady backing up a service vehicle to the 321 to service it. She was very small in stature, wearing big boots and, uh, and a big overall because of a very cold day in February. She was turning around and she accidentally hit the accelerator instead of the brake and careened underneath the airplane. We have video of it. And, let, and, and her front tires were cocked. So as you watch the video, she comes careening toward the nose gear of the airplane and hits the tow bar and finally stops. Luckily, nobody was killed. Nobody was hurt. No aircraft was really substantially damaged. It was very lucky. And I asked our people when we show this at orientation, I said, what do you think's happened to her? And they all saw her. She's fired. I said, no, she's a supervisor now. Again, to take her and make a safety advocate instead of a safety adversary. And what we learned was that there was no reason for that vehicle to be able to go that fast in reverse on the ramp. So we put governors on the vehicles, and it really went a long way in minimizing damages on the ramp. And so that is a ground ops example, but it could be applicable to maintenance as well. You, you need to institute it. You've got to take a leap of faith. I know when we first brought out Just Culture, and there was an issue of, I think it was, I forgot what airline it was, Atlanta on the parallel runway up at SeaTac, and the pilots were head down, and they were distracted by their checklist as they departed their uh, landing runway. And they finally realized that they stopped right in the middle of the parallel runway at a, uh, a northwest aircraft took over took off right over them and i wanted to have their you know what i wanted them to hold as did all the rest of the leadership and i called down the southern region and i said hey you need to look at this and we don't think we can accept them in this new just culture asap process well peggy gilligan says all right gentlemen calm down your testosterone let's let the process work sure enough they accepted it and we learned a lot about checklist usage and, and and saying, okay, airlines do not have checklists being operated and, and after you depart the runway until you get onto your ramp or something like that. So there, it's a leap of faith when you go into ju the just culture and protection of reporting. And you have to bite your lips sometimes. You have to swallow hard because you think, gosh, I want to just cream those folks. When that's just an emotional reaction. I talked to our EASA counterparts. They, they actually, it's, it's based on history of societies. I mean, there is the Anglo-Saxon way of, yes, listening, don't uh, bash over the head, but try to work through the systemic cause of it. And then there is the Latin form of 
response, which is analogous to the Spanish Inquisition, which is to just discipline for an infraction. So we've learned that, and, and it just takes time to do that. Now, on the training, I have been an advocate that the OEMs, and they're willing to provide the training to our maintainers for free. And, and I know a lot of our inspectors, our maintenance inspectors, were upset that they weren't keep being kept abreast of all the new technology. Well, I got beat back because the, the legal concern is that they will be, quote, seen as too cozy with a, a manufacturer if they get that training, which is, I think, as much as hooey. But there's an opportunity for a lot of folks to get training out there, especially the inspectors, and we can't do it because it's looked as compromising their objectivity. That's something I wish I could see get changed. You know, anyway, setting up on that. I agree with you. That needs to be changed because they can't keep up. One of the things with government, and I saw this when I came from industry going into the NTSB, how far behind the government was with what's going on in the industry. And I did, I tried to bridge that gap with with some of the people and as far as the air carriers were concerned by getting them out and getting some training on air carriers. In fact, one of our NTSB engineers, I got him out to do a, a lower 41, section 41 inspection on a 747. And six months later, he was digging through TWA 800 and looking to see if there was any issues in that one. We didn't know what, what had brought that airplane down. John, in your book, you know, you talk about a variety of things. We've, we've touched on SMS and, and, of course, the big airline operations. But one of the advantages you had uh, at JetBlue was, you know, some non-aviation type stuff in that you did, you were able to, as a management pilot, pick your trips, stay current and proficient and that kind of stuff. What was interesting is you talk about uh, the trips you would take out to the West Coast to see your son, who... He's a comedian. Yeah, he's uh, so Tim is doing improv before the virus hit. He's also a, a family attorney lawyer. And when he's four years old, one morning we were sitting down at the breakfast table. I was reading the paper. And he had the poopy hair and he was eating his little cereal. He kept staring at me and I just ignored him. And he kept staring at me. I would ignore him some more as I did as a dad. And finally, after like 15 minutes, I turned at him and I said, what are you looking at? What's on your mind? He goes, I have a question. He always says that. I said, what? He said, how long ago did your head suck in your hair? Now, I, <laughs> I, 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 I knew right there, this was an unusual child. So, yes, yes, he's a San Diego. And he, he's done great with the groundlings in L.A., San Diego. But the virus has just, just completely wiped out uh, that part of the industry. So he hasn't been doing it for a while. But, yeah, he is. I'm glad you brought up that. It's a unique part of the book. And I, I did it. I did actually do that Finney flight. I'm lucky to have done one. A lot of pilots stopped flying because of the virus. They never got a Finney flight. So I did it as a tribute to them. And I also threw it in to work it into the book so I could pay tribute to a lot of people, a lot of groups of folks contributing to aviation. It was a mechanism, if you will, as well. So I want to give tribute to air traffic control. I want to give tribute to my wife and to spouses, to partners, to family members who also sacrificed for us to be able to do what we would do and, and to have to exercise our passion. I wanted to give also for the young folks out there an understanding that as they go through life, they should look to be mentored and they should mentor folks. 
and one thing that almost I, I almost brought a tear to my eye, and it's true, is this kid that I I found off of the lawnmower in Kentucky, and he's now going through pilot training, and he named his first daughter Piper. That just choked me up every time I think about that. So I wanted to use the the my my Finney flight as a metaphor of aviation in general, my appreciation for a lot of people and a lot of things in aviation. And it kind of put a capstone on it and to offer it to other pilots who didn't get their Finney flight, but then think back to all their other flights and cobble together their own Finney flight. So as a metaphor, so that, that's why I wanted to put that part in my book. Well, that makes it, it makes it more human. I mean, we, you know, we get into aviation and just like in this discussion, you know, we, we get down to some really serious stuff. We, we talk about the do's and don'ts of aviation. And of course, we live in a risk environment in aviation. We're in a 100% risk environment. We do our best to mitigate or eliminate those risks so we can operate safely. But I found your human interest side in the book interesting and entertaining and, and appreciative of the fact that yeah, we don't give enough credit to those people that support us in our families or just our colleagues who who don't get to share the limelight, but do a hell of a lot of work to make sure that their respective aspect of aviation is safe and, and that we perform at the highest levels of safety. One last question, and that is, you know, I hear it all the time, especially now in my afterlife, where I am a consultant and I am a, an expert witness. And they always talk about the regulations being the minimum standard as set forth by the FAA. Now, my perspective is different because that regulation, regardless of what part it's in, that regulation is the standard. It's not the minimum. It is the standard. What is the real interpretation of the regulations? Are a are they a minimum standard? And of course, because we're always we're always pushing that whether you're a 91 operator or a 121 operator, anybody in between, you should be operating always above the standard at the highest levels of safety. But I've always viewed the regulation as the standard. It's not a minimum. It's not. It's not written in the in the regulations as well. These are the minimum standards. So, what is the true interpretation of what those regulations are? They aren't the highest level because you can always operate higher, and if you operate lower, you're in violation. But what is the spirit or the intent of the regulation? The way I looked at them, they are the regulatory standard, but we expect operations to operate at the higher standards so that because regulars, regulations are react are reactive, they're not proactive or predictive. And as we're saying with SMS and we want to move the industry to being proactive and predictive, then they have to go up and above the regulatory standard. And so I think that that's an important philosophy that, that folks out there need to understand. Great. Yeah, it's uh, it is that. Yeah, you can always operate higher, and of course, if you operate lower, you're going to get a knock on the door or a love letter from the FAA. But I always hate when people characterize the regulation. Well, those are the minimum standards. Well, no, they're the standard. Could the FAA dumb those down and and make them lower? Hell yeah, they can. But they've determined that the standard that they've written is an acceptable standard to at least operate safely for whatever that regulation applies to. 
So I think to uh, first bring along some kind of organization and uh, discipline to the uh, aviation world, you have to have a level playing field from which to start from. And that's what the regulatory standards, the regulations give is a level playing field to organize activities and from which the the Z, guys in the zebra shirts, the, the regulators, the inspectors, have a basis to judge performance. Now, as we go forward, we're looking for a more sophisticated perspective on regulatory compliance and going above just basic regulatory compliance to a risk base, a implementation and success-based safety program. So as we go forward, just complying, the basically you, you, the compliance with the regulation is a given, is a minimum, an expected given, an expected requirement. But you have to go better than that. I hope that answers your question. When you operate to a minimum standard, in any given operation, on one day you're going to be well above the minimum, the next day you're going to be below it. So if you have an operation that needs to be consistently at or above the minimum standard, then your daily operation has to be consistently above it. You know, regulations get stale right away. I mean, you know, it takes 10 years to write the darn thing. It's, or it's probably written on an accident or written on something. So the issue that occurred might be 20 years old by the time someone's trying to follow the regulation. They need to look at the intent of that regulation. What is its intent and follow that intent and think about, okay, now in this day and age, you know, uh, what do I really need to do? Because I probably need to do better than what is even written in the regulation. Uh, it's a little esoteric maybe, but that's, that's the story. You know, maybe 40 years ago, we had the, an effort to have regulation by objective. And I was very vocal in my opposition to that. But now in my older years and being around the industry in a whole different area sometimes, I think that that may have been a mistake on my part. I think if we had laid out clear objectives for what we wanted from the regulation and had each operator meet those, it would be a lot easier for the regulatory authorities to say, you have met it or you have not. The goal is to have no plane crashes. Well, when you have a plane crash, you didn't meet the goal. And you go backwards and find out why. So there is more than one way to, to have a regulation that works, but, you know, it's a big industry. It's a lot of different ideas and a lot of different people and cultures, like you said earlier. So it's not, it's not so easy. One size doesn't fit all sometimes. No, it's not easy. Hey, John, um, yeah. one, one of the things about regulation, and, and we've heard it over the years, and we will, we will continue to hear it, is that because aviation has evolved so much, does there need to be a major overhaul mm. of the federal aviation regulations, given the fact that the majority of them were written, they were carryovers from the 30s, 40s, 50s, they were really bound up, if you will in the 50s and 60s and have evolved through accidents and and that kind of stuff 
does the FAA really need to sit down, convene a group, and and bring up to date regulations to keep up with today's aviation? Or are they sufficient enough where they just need to be tweaked as necessary? I love talking to you guys. Oh, my goodness. I love that question. Yes, they do. Now, that will be very, very hard. There's a lot of risk because our industry is so big and we are such a litigious society. It would be a very, very difficult thing to do. But I do think so. I think there, because we've been at aviation so long, since the early 1900s, there is layer on layer on layer of regulation. Regulations uh, relate to another regulation, relate to another regulations. And sometimes I joke, I defy any airman to work or fly through the national airspace system and not break a regulation. Because I think that they are so cumbersome and they're not laid out very well. Now, I say that because we became aware of SMS because of the New Zealand and Australian authorities doing just that, rewriting their regulations. And they decided to, that again, philosophically put the onus on the operators and have the regulators as overseers and rewrote the regulations with that mindset to make them streamlined, make them easier to understand. I think that in the future, they, if they rewrote them, that they make it clear in a preamble, if you will, or whatever, what the intent is to help the inspector and to help folks who are operating how to interpret them. Which right now, the way they're written, it's very hard to interpret what is the intent of these regulations. So I definitely think that that would be a very welcome thing, but it would be very difficult. Yeah, the the big question, because again, you know, you've been there, you've been on both sides of the issue. When you look at the FAA and their interpretation of a regulation, it varies from region to region, office to office. And that's because you can be in one region operating under your particular op spec. You get somebody riding in the jump seat from the FAA and they go, that's in noncompliance. Next thing you know, you're going, well, wait a minute here. That's been approved. This is the way we operate. And there then becomes this interpretation battle between, you know, this other region or inspector versus the POI or the PMI who, you know, approved that standard. So, and I know that that leads to a lot of frustration because uh, the fear factor is, well, you know, if I go over here, we know how bad these guys are. They'll violate us for this, yet it's an approved procedure by our own guy. And, and I think you bring up a good point, and that is we need some standardization so that we take that subjective perspective out of the interpretation. So no matter who, whether it's an inspector, a pilot, a mechanic, or an organization, when they look at that regulation, they know what the spirit and intent is without having to worry about, well, you know, Joe Schmuckatelli out of the Northeast region interprets it this way, and the guys in the Southwest region interpret it that way. Just before my retirement, I was uh, the government co-chair of an aviation rulemaking committee on this very subject. Ironically, Dan Elwell was part of that committee. And my thinking, John Allen's thinking, this is not, you know, about policy FA or anything, is that the reason we have this is I failed because our training at Oklahoma City wasn't as good in this realm as it should be. And partly because of regulations, some of the old ones, you can't find 
the notice for proposed rulemaking that has the preamble where it has the whole discussion so you can understand the intent of the framers of that regulation. And I, I think that that needs to be called out more, uh, made easily readable and provided to the inspectors. Because what happens with that void, what they're doing is that they're writing crib sheets, they're getting letters, they're, they're getting things in Oklahoma City at their initial training and putting it in their drawer and pulling it out and using it later, but they're not based on any fact. It's based on tribal knowledge. And we know it's going rampantly. And the other problem we have sometimes we have you know, they're trying hard, but there are instructors who were inspectors in the 70s and the 80s. And so we're trying to do new policies and new ideas, and they want to fall right back to what they're comfortable with and kind of undo what we're trying to inculcate with the inspectors. So that's an issue I think that I failed at it. I didn't get enough done to John Duncan, my successor tribe. But part of it is that not adequate training for the inspectors to know that. Now, we will never have perfect knowledge by the inspectors because the philosophies and the technologies and, and all those things of aviation is changing so quickly. That's why I encourage a lot of students to say, look, we got a disagreement with the inspector. Don't sit there and fume and fuss. Run it up the channel. I mean, it, no inspector was ever fired for a disagreement on interpretation if in, at the headquarters we had to intercede because maybe the inspector just didn't know. And so with us being at the point where we're getting knowledge of all these different changes in, in the uh, regulatory compliance arena, we need to help them out. So I even advocated, this is a weird thought that I come up with every so often, you know, when you got big companies like GE or other companies, they have a 24-7 command center. All the airlines have one. Well, why don't the FAA have one and have experts on call 24-7 with, you know, the, the 145 background, 121 background, have lawyers there so that if someone has a concern and wants an interpretation, an inspector wants an interpretation, they can call the number and then they yeah. can get the, get it from the horse's mouth and it'll be more defensible. But uh, that didn't that didn't go anywhere, but that's okay. But that's just I mean, what I think about that. No, I think it's a great idea because when I'm having to do stuff in my, you know, when I was at the NTSB, but now in my afterlife, where I have to interpret the spirit or intent of the regulation, or I have to see how the FAA views that regulation. Of course, I go to the legal interpretations. So I research any kind of legal interpretations the FAA has made on that particular regulation where I call my buddies at the FAA and I give them a hypothetical and say, here's the circumstance. How would you interpret this regulation as it applies to the, the uh, event that took place? I try to get their understanding to see how they would interpret or how they would enforce that regulation. Or would they just blow it off and go that what that guy did or what that gal did doesn't meet the spirit or intent you know, non-compliance with the regulation. And I think it's a great idea because I'm trying to research it and I would encourage pilots and mechanics and, and just, uh, you know, management folks to do what you just suggested because I've done that in the past. I've gone back and looked at historical information about the spirit and intent of the regulation through the NPRM. I always look at the comments because the comments are the perspective of the, the aviators, the aviation community, who's going to have to abide by this new regulation to see what their perspective is and to see how they're shooting bullets at this, this regulation and how it's going to either help the industry or harm the industry. And I think that if you have that 
that basic level of knowledge, then when you take that into your respective flight operation, you can at least train that or demonstrate that to the you know pilots, mechanics, management as to here's what the FAA expects. And this is the spirit by which this regulation is written. And this is the way we're going to abide by that regulation. Yeah, a lot can be gained from those comments. And it's really interesting to see, okay, what is the FAA reaction to a certain comment to say, we don't accept your suggestion or your comment. Yes. Then you get the perspective of the FAA as to in terms of intent. And that's what I'm saying. I wish that that was all distilled down and made in a book. Or at one area, you get an FSIMS, a Flight Standards Information System. Go there and by rule, it goes the verbiage of the rule, but then, you know, then takes the intent from the uh, notice for rule, proposed rulemaking and succinctly puts it in there for the uh, industry, for the public, and for the inspectors to see. I wish that could happen. But again, that's uh, that's probably a big effort for some contractor somewhere. Sure. Well, John, I, I think this has been an outstanding uh, conversation over the past two shows, and we greatly appreciate you taking the time to uh, to enlighten us with the, with all your experience. And I'm glad that uh, you've been able to retire three times. That's, you know, nice little retirement check from three different organizations. So I'm hoping you're spending it very well. I know that uh, we always appreciate your insight and uh, we are now declaring you a friend of the show. So expect to be back on the show on a regular basis to give us your perspectives because uh, I think you bring a lot of value to the discussions that John G and I have on a variety of different subjects, both that pertain domestically as well as internationally. And you've got all of that experience. So we do greatly appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend uh, on these last two shows. And I will say that when are you going to publish? Is the book published now or is it uh, still being edited and you're self-publishing? How is that working? Thanks. Yeah, this, I'm, I'm not a writer, but I'm new at this. So I have John Nance. He's a friend of mine, and he's reviewing it to give me some pointers as far as trying to find a publisher. Uh, first, I had to put it out there just to see if it was worthwhile in publishing. And I've been getting feedback that it is. So I hope to find a publisher and get it out. The name might change, you know, but I'm working on it. Uh, and so I hope to have it out sometime this year. Well, I think that it'll benefit the aviation community because, one, it's a good read. It was an easy read. But you got to right to the point in addressing, I think, issue areas that all of us in the business, whether you fly it, fix it, or manage it, whether you're a Part 91 operator or 121 operator, you bring some good perspective to the discussion. And you bring just enough discussion not to belabor the point or drone on. And you have good examples with some of the accidents, uh, like I said, many of which I was either involved with as an investigator or the investigator in charge or or very familiar with. So it it was kind of like old home reading the synoptic of the accident and the outcomes and perspectives. So I think that that in and of itself will bring some good information to, uh, to the reader as well. So again, we really appreciate it. And John G., I'll let you say goodbye to to my other John, you know. So, I mean, it's nice having two Johns. I, too, would like to thank you very much, John, for your time, your effort, your knowledge. And we will have you back. And I know my students will will miss you. But I think now that we're doing so much Zooming, maybe we can have you on Zoom with my SMS class at Vaughn College. Well, 
Thank you. I admire. This is a mutual admiration club. I admire your all's uh, past careers and, and and present career. Yeah, John. I think when I want to get involved in some teaching, I want to help give back to a lot of the youth are out there. For any pilots who are listening, I have lots of pictures and diagrams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so hopefully, yeah. <laughs> make it readable. And I, I thank you that I thank you the feedback there, Greg. I, I do appreciate it. And to John, uh, yeah, and I'd be happy. I'd like to. I, I got to. I get to fly. That's my. That's my black lab. That's my retirement. The pool guys are here. That's my retirement too. Uh, but anyway, I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do uh, plan on getting back to teaching. I can fly up to uh, to JFK uh, for free on JetBlue. The, I'm still got positive space, so um, I can hopefully do that. Thank you guys for having me on. I, I look forward to there coming back. I appreciate it. Excellent, John. Thank you again, and uh, take care. Stay safe. Are you too? Too appreciate it. And I'd like to remind our audience that this show has been brought to you by Avemco Insurance. And if you're buying an airplane, need to reinsure your airplane, give them a call. Mention Flight Safety Detectives. Get a 5% discount. And Greg, how far away are you from your new airplane? I'm real close. Very close. It's just a matter of putting a new fuel pump on the airplane and doing a test flight, some run-ups, and, uh, and then we're ready to rock and roll. It's just hard with COVID trying to get the you know schedules aligned and, and that kind of stuff because everybody is concerned about you know the COVID environment. But uh, we're getting close, and I believe that Vemco is, uh, is going to be my insurance company. I'm, I'm delaying you know the insurance until we get the airplane actually flying, but uh, they are going to be my insured as well. So it's uh, our insurance company. So I'm looking forward to it because I've had a great history with Avemco on my uh, other airplanes. And so uh, they've treated me well. And uh, again, I like the personalized service when I've called. They're very responsive. And again, not only do you get the 5% discount by telling them that you uh, to listen to flight safety detectives, but they also have other programs that can give you discounts as well. So again, it is definitely worth checking them out. They have a different philosophy uh, with regard to uh, insuring pilots and and aircraft. And and I would recommend that you definitely check it out. And for my friend, John G, you have got to use some of those maintenance skills of yours and work on your audio. I'm not sure why it... (laughs) why it decided to fade out and make it sound like you're talking across a hangar. But if you've had a little bit of an issue hearing John, for all of our listeners, we will make sure that those audio issues are corrected. So, because we've had a great discussion with John Allen and I know that John G has made some good comments as well. And we don't want you to miss out on that. In addition, if uh, you like the show, you don't like the show, you liked our guests or the things that we talked about, we always appreciate your feedback. You can contact us anytime through our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. We've greatly appreciated your recent feedback. Uh, I just saw this morning that we got some more emails in, so I'm going to review those because I'm sure that uh, there's probably some discussion points for for John and I in the next show. So we will be perusing that. And again, we thank you greatly for your support. We appreciate the donations 
and the financial support. I see that we've got some new folks that have recently donated to the show, both through the podcast, the website, and uh, YouTube. So we definitely appreciate that because that's how we try to make this show better. And as we've said on previous shows, we're getting very close now to launching the video aspect. And um, we're going to I've got some great plans. I've been talking to a couple of friends of the show that we've had on the past shows where now we can actually show pictures, show videos while we're talking about it so that you, the audience, can see exactly what we're discussing. So uh, I'm getting excited about that and, and looking forward to it. So with that, John G, I'm going to leave you the last word. So talk loudly since you're talking, you know, across a hangar. Okay. To all our listeners, please stay safe in your personal life. Wear the mask. Be socially distanced. Wash your hands often. We might be coming towards the end of this. We need to get it behind us. The social gatherings are a big one. We saw what happened after Christmas and New Year's, a huge spike. So just because it's a family member, they can still be carrying this bug. So you've got to keep your guard up until we get this behind us. And if you're going to fly, please pay attention to your pre-flight checks. Pay attention to detail and fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>